is Bean to Barstool, a podcast that looks at the intersections of craft beer and craft chocolate. My name is David Nelson. I'm a professional beer writer and an advanced Cicerone and the creator and host of this show. The music for this episode is by my dear friend, indie folk musician Anna P.S. You can find out more about Anna's music in the show notes or at her website, annapsmusic.com. You can find links and information about our guests in the show notes as well. I hope you enjoy this episode of Bean to Barstool. In today's episode, we'll talk with Kjartan Gislason, the founder of Omnam Chocolate in Reykjavik, Iceland. Omnam is known not only for their delicious and creative bean-to-bar chocolate, but for the colorful packaging and marketing that presents the spirit of Omnam to consumers. We'll talk about that spirit behind Omnam, as well as their collaborations with Reykjavik craft breweries on both chocolates and beers, and the use of flavors distinct to Icelandic culture. Reykjavik, Iceland sits on a mounded spit of land reaching out into Faxa Bay in the North Atlantic, a couple thousand miles north of where the Titanic dove for the bottom a century ago. The city's low buildings and irregular streets tumble down toward the foot of the water, crouched against the wind and watched over by Mount Esja, seven miles to the north across the bay. The world's northernmost capital is no place of easy comforts. The entire city hunkers against the cold wind like barnacles clinging to the tugboats that dot the city's harbor. My wife and I were there one November to explore its beer scene, and we'd weathered the chill and the rain and snow all week. We're Midwesterners. It's our life half of the year, and easy comforts aren't something we expect. Still, when we traveled to the city on the water, the first winter storm of the season caught us by surprise. Reykjavik's streets curl up from the water on all sides, and the wind and wet weave their way up these narrow urban tunnels like anadromous fish, and pedestrians are just rocks in the stream. On the morning of our last day, a fierce winter blow wandered in on a sea witch's whisper in the pre-dawn light, and howled against the city all through the day and into the evening. It felt like the wind had picked up the sea with it and flung it against the city. It was no day for the leaky Converse tennis shoes we'd been wearing all week. It's a testament to our priorities in life that we'll fly around the world to try exotic beers, but do so in shoes that have open holes in the soles. We pack light even in winter, relying on layers rather than heavy coats, and we've gotten used to the pitying looks of locals in foreign cities as we hunch against the cold and thin hoodies. We grew up near the Great Lakes, so we know how to be happy even when we're damp and shivering as long as there's good beer nearby. We plan many of our international trips for the hinge season of mid-autumn, a tilt felt most keenly at this city's latitude. We witnessed Reykjavik during the thin stretch of the year when they experience days as the rest of us do, when the sun sets and then rises and sets again. We walked these streets as they passed from months of endless light to months of endless darkness. You could feel dusk encroach on the city from both sides of the clock, gradually claiming more and more. Reykjavik's cafes and bars were islands of light and warmth in a city awash in its own atmospheric fury, cozy in a way that seems to intentionally compensate for the bleak pragmatism of the city's exteriors. A warm, steamy window appears in the dark of a dripping side street. You open a door, and the idea of warmth enters you before the temperature itself does. The ceiling is low, as is the lighting and the volume. The bars are different each, but united in their ensconced insistence on hedonistic comfort. 
Outside the windows of Caldy Bar, which poured beers from local breweries, including Borg, the witch of the North Atlantic howled down the streets, cracking tree limbs that would litter the streets the next morning. At the end of the night, we stepped back out into that maelstrom. It was difficult to remember what dry feet even felt like, but we were past caring. We held each other close and found our way home through the city's twisting streets, the wind still raging, though the rain had slowed. Porch lights glowed in the darkness, and the city's architecture, so austere and pragmatic in the light, took on the severe beauty of the coastline, staccato silhouettes glistening in the damp. We were euphoric from some alchemy of sleep deprivation, alcohol, and the singular elation of being in a foreign place. This peninsula of water and concrete and black beaches of volcanic sand, reaching into the distance like photographic negatives of a Caribbean paradise, was its own intoxication. The next morning, the storm was nearly forgotten in the dawn light. The sea was calm, and the rain and wind had moved on. Some downed tree branches were all that remained of the previous day's ferocity. Everything was quiet again in the harbor, at the foot of a mountain, in this city by the sea. When we traveled to Reykjavik, it was at the very beginning of my awareness of bean to bar chocolate. I knew about Omnom, but due to a rare lack of preparation, my wife and I are consummate list makers and double checkers, we arrived at Omnom's factory near the tip of a small peninsula beside the harbor, ten minutes too late on our final day in Iceland. They had closed. We bought bars from gift shops instead, and hopefully we'll return someday and get to tour the factory made famous, at least to some degree, by Zac Efron's Netflix show Down to Earth, which highlighted Omnom in an episode in 2020. Reykjavik is a quirky but delightful city, with eye-melting street murals and great live music, hot dog stands and amazing seafood, year-round outdoor swimming pools, even a phallic museum? Yes, that is what it sounds like. Amnam perfectly embodies the singular spirit of its home, and I sat down recently with Amnam's Kjartan Gislason to talk about how the company got started and the spirit behind its creativity. Uh, so I'm a chef by trade and kind of been always been very interested in all things cooking, especially kind of like what really always gets me excited is a type of method of how you cook things, you know, the kind of procedures and stuff like that. So I've always been kind of nerdy in that in that aspect. So I always, always liked dessert, even though I'm not a pastry chef. I always thought that uh, chocolate was something different and the first time I actually went into a chocolate factory that was in France, uh, the Valrona factory, more than 20 years ago. And it just kind of blew me away because I kind of never thought much about how chocolate was made. Uh, you know, as a chef, you always just get it ready into the kitchen to work with. Or it, when you're a kid, you just buy it from the grocery store and, and you maybe don't think too much about how it's made. So it was kind of eye-opening experience seeing how it was made coming from uh, the beans, how they get processed into this beautiful liquid. And then really the story of how the beans become actually beans, you know, uh, coming from a cocoa pot, which is the fruit. And inside of it, you have the beans, which is basically the seeds of the fruit. And then the process of fermenting them and drying before the chocolate maker can actually start using them to make chocolate. So the idea came to me almost 10 years ago now that I was, I approached one of my childhood friends, Oscar, hit them this idea that I wanted to do something on my own. I was kind of getting tired of working in restaurants and wanted maybe 
something like a day job or, or my own kind of business. And I had this idea of opening up a bakery shop, kind of pastry shop that we would do breads and, you know, pastry and have our own chocolate made in-house that we'd use for the pastry. And I was kind of explaining to him, you know, the process of making chocolate. And he was, you know, he had never really heard about that either. He, he's not a chef. So to him, that I was kind of, I, I could have been explaining him, I don't know, the, the quantum physics theory. <laughs> He kind of came back to me later on and said, you know, I, I like the thing you were talking about chocolate because he's also, he gets very interested in food and, and he thought it was kind of interesting that I wanted to make my own chocolate. Uh, his background is maybe more in business and different types of ventures that he had been in the past, but he kind of always talked that we wanted to do something, something food-wise together. So he was impressed with his idea, but he kind of thought it would be very interesting maybe create a brand around it like maybe just go on full-on chocolate making but not that kind of pastry shop idea that i have and as long as i get to make chocolate i'm happy so we started kind of experimenting with it but as i said we've had this kind of ideas in the past of doing something together so i, I never really thought we would get this kind of like off the ground i always thought we we're just gonna you know work on this for a couple of months and then get bored with it and go back to our job so but luckily it kind of worked that after we started kind of uh, researching, buying equipment, getting the material to my apartment and just kind of playing around with some ideas that uh, just struck with us that, you know, we might have something here. I mean, like the first time I made my first batch of chocolate and we tasted it and we knew like, wow, this tastes so different from anything else because we were using cocoa beans that are much more rare, much more premium in taste and also have been taking a lot of care of from the growers who are also the ones who do the fermentation. So the kind of bean to bar culture or kind of business had just at around that time had been slowly growing. And I think we came in at a time when it was just about to explode. So we were there kind of like early on with the rest of the kind of bean to bar chocolate movement that has been going on for the past 10, 15 years now. And eventually when we felt confident enough that we had something, we decided to contact a friend of mine who was a graphic designer and just pitch him this idea and see if he could come up with a concept and a design and look and feel for the brand that we wanted to make. So we always just felt like this was going to stop at some point. You know, we were, we were always kind of like half interested in the idea, even though I was very enthusiastic about just figuring out how to make the best chocolate, how to do the best roasting and et cetera. So but once we kind of got the first design sent back from our designer, it kind of took a life on its own. We just saw that, okay, this could actually turn out to be something. So we invested a little bit more money. We found a, actually a location here in Reykjavik, which was an old uh, gasoline station that was been abandoned for a couple of years. So we could have we set up shop there and uh, eight years on. We are at a much bigger facility now. We moved uh, to a new production space five years ago. It's not far away from that gasoline station that we were originally in. Uh, we have around 30 employees at this point, and we're exporting a lot more than we did before. So it's kind of been growing more towards that direction of export, even though it's something, you know, when you're younger, I would say, you have these kind of ideas. Yeah, maybe this could be a product that we could export. So we always thought in the beginning to keep everything in English just in case, you know, if somebody would be interested in buying this abroad. So it's grown almost to 50% of our production gets, gets exported. And where do you source your cacao? So the beans that we're currently using come from uh, Madagascar, Tanzania, and Nicaragua. Uh, in the past, we've had cocoa beans coming from uh, Peru, 
some from the Dominican Republic and also Belize. And we're constantly always getting new cocoa beans in-house to test out and think about. But those three uh, that I mentioned have been become our kind of like stable ones that we use for especially our single origin dark chocolates uh, and also using some of our milk chocolate. And I always like to just use the single origin for whatever product we make. I've done tests of blending the beans together and they, yeah, it comes out with interesting flavor pearl, but I just like using the single origin ones sure. because it, they have such a specific flavor. And are you working directly with farms or are you using a broker to acquire those? For instance, with Madagascar, that's the kind of only direct farm cocoa beans we get. It comes from a farm in Madagascar in the San Perino Valley uh, called Akison. I mean, we're like on first name basis with Bertil Akison, the owner of the plantation. He also sells a, a lot of his beans to a lot of other bean to bar producers and versus like Valrona, that factory I mentioned earlier. Tanzania, Nicaragua, those are more like accumulation of different farms, but under one umbrella, for instance, in Tanzania, we have a company called Coco Camilli that buys off the beans in the region that they work with. So up to like 300 different farm, farms that they buy their cocoa beans from, and also they do the fermentation. And then sometimes we have to go through a broker to get those beans, but we're always in close contact with all those middlemen, at least. You mentioned your graphic design, and you certainly do have very recognizable and eye-catching wrappers and artwork. Tell me a little bit about how that helps to tell the story of your chocolate. Initially, when I pitched the idea to Andre, who was our initial graphic designer, that I wanted to do something colorful, uh, maybe hints of, you know, something childish, but not too. We didn't want to go Teletubbies or anything (laughs) like that, but something... I mean, both me and Andre had a lot of passion for comic books and, and maybe anime, like manga, the Japanese kind of stuff. So he's done different kind of works in the past. And I remember seeing something from his portfolio that looked very similar to our logo. And I, I kind of pointed at that and said, this is the kind of style I would love to do. This is the kind of retro, timeless kind of feel to it. And I, we definitely wanted something that would just be kind of eye-catching, colorful, but also a fun element about it because I think you know both the name itself kind of came from uh, like an internet meme at the time we just wanted something that was a little silly but you know chocolate should be fun it should be a fun experience to eat it it's something that we grow up eating as a candy and this what we produce is kind of has all those elements but you know also done for adults but you know for the kid inside of us enjoyment kind of feel to it so uh, we were just trying to capture that kind of vibe when we were talking about the design for the packaging we'll be right back hey everyone getting a cicerone certification is an amazing way to raise your beer knowledge and can be a game changer for your beer career But how are you supposed to find the time to prep and how are you supposed to know exactly what to study? Don't sweat because the Beer Scholar has you covered. Beer Scholar is a sponsor of Bean to Barstool, but I can tell you from personal experience years before I was doing this podcast how helpful the Beer Scholar study guides are. 
They offer efficient online courses for levels one and two that cover everything you need to know, tips and tricks for how to pass the exams, and include live weekly Zooms to taste and discuss classic beer styles together. They even have a new coaching program for the level three advanced Cicerone exam. I used the Beer Scholar Study Guide to pass my level two exam many years ago. I wish the level three had been around when I took that exam. I had to do it on my own. Wish their study guides had been available for that at the time. The vast majority of certified Cicerones in the world today have used Beer Scholar to help achieve the goal of passing that exam. If you are ready to take your beer career to the next level, visit thebeerscholar.com and check out their online courses. You've done some bars, I'm thinking about the Lacris and Sea Salt Bar in particular, that use some very iconically Icelandic flavors in them. Can you talk a little bit about that bar and uh, getting to kind of use that Icelandic culinary tradition? The, the Lacris or, or licorice is something that's been, I don't know, since I was a kid, always this kind of, especially black salty licorice. And and maybe maybe it was like in the eighties, I think it was that people would buy like a roll of black licorice and a milk chocolate bar, and they would kind of like combine the two. Hmm. They would always buy them separately, and it became like a trend. People would buy these kind of licorice roll, and they would kind of roll it around the milk chocolate bar, and then eat it like that. And that became like a thing that all the kids knew. Like you need to try this. This is the best. And I think the kind of candy companies at the time kind of heard about this. And one producer, one of the bakers here in Iceland, started producing the, the combo of black licorice and milk chocolate together. And then basically every other company, candy company, started producing the same kind of variant of it. And it just became like synonymous. You have black licorice and milk chocolate somehow blended together. And it just became this thing that would always work. So when we started talking about some flavor ideas of course licorice was like the first thing that came to mind and I wanted to try something different with it not making the kind of you know because black licorice candy is basically sugar syrup and a lot of flour boiled together till it becomes this soft chewy kind of type candy but taking the licorice root itself the source ingredient for licorice so mm -hmm. getting that and mixing that into like a white chocolate blend kind of resulted in a very similar way as the kind of combo that everybody would have been doing, but much more vivid, much more flavorful. So that we knew for at least the Icelandic market would work. We weren't sure that would be something that others outside of Iceland would like. Also, we had a little, like a healthy dose of salt to it just to kind of like balance in the sweetness. But that bar actually kind of made us as a business. I mean, it started outselling everything else that we we're producing here in Iceland. And this was before we started exporting as much as we're doing now and became a, like a staple product for us, something that we could actually earn some money on and, you know, buy more equipment and hire more staff. So for us, it's a, it's a very, and still is one of our most best sellers. I think what's amazing for me when I taste that bar is that it tastes like licorice root more than it tastes like licorice candy. My dad started giving me licorice root to chew on when I was a kid. And I've you know done that ever since. And it has such a more robust flavor than just licorice candy, like we buy at the exactly. store. So when I taste that bar, 
it's that full licorice root flavor in yeah. there. Exactly. And that that's really what we're using. So we use the powder that comes from the licorice root. So the, the root itself gets gets steamed. So it's soft and palatable, and then it gets kind of crushed. And it releases this kind of uh, sap, sap, kind of juice that comes from it. And that gets dehydrated. And that's the powder that we use for the bar. And it's very pungent and very kind of, uh, you, you can almost inhale it and you can feel it in your lungs because it's, it's very strong. So you have to be a little bit careful when we're mixing that into the blends. My understanding is that licorice root does not grow in northern climates. How did that become part of Icelandic culinary <laughs> tradition? <laughs> That's a very good question. I, I think a lot of our kind of food heritage culture comes from the Scandinavians. Like uh, licorice candies is very popular in Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Finland, and even all the way to the Netherlands. They have all this kind of uh, food taste for the salty black licorice. And somehow it just made its way to Iceland as well. So I have no idea where the kind of start came from. But of course, it's a very or Middle Eastern ingredient that has somehow made its way here. For instance, when we've had people from Japan come to our shop and we let them taste the licorice bar, they get so turned off, off by it because for them, licorice is only something that's used in medicine. So having that as a combination in candy, blows their mind some of them like it but others just feel like this is not right what has the response been of the Reykjavik community to having an internationally known chocolate company right there in the city that's actually a good question uh, i'm not sure really but we're one of a kind here in iceland and Reykjavik, of course so uh i, I think still what we're kind of like always trying to get the point across that we actually make our chocolate from scratch from the cocoa bean and even and it's like like I said earlier when I was explaining it to my business partner Oscar in the beginning, it still feels like you're explaining something so complex to people that they don't really get their head around it. But I think like with the media and other talk, we've won some awards in terms of kind of uh, environmental made food products. So I think the reception here has been really good. This kind of similar way how craft beer started making headlines and people just discovered that beer can be so many different things and different ingredients and different types of style, etc. So I feel like we're we're kind of used that sometimes as an example of what we were doing. Uh, like it's like saying like how microbreweries are making their beer, how why an IPA doesn't taste like the regular lager or pilsner. So it's just like kind of we are doing using a different method and trying to source our own ingredients to impact the flavor but I, overall if it's just terms of iceland i think we've been very well received we are in most local supermarkets here in iceland Reykjavik. It, it is gaining more traction and i think especially now in covid even when most people that wouldn't go out to any supermarket or shop our online sales spiked really in that period so it really kind of helped Kjartan mentioned the reception to Omnam's chocolate in Reykjavik has been similar to that of craft beer, and he has collaborated with several breweries in the city on chocolate beers, as well as a chocolate bar that uses a beer ingredient rarely found in craft chocolate. I understand with the black and burnt barley bar that that came about sort of as an accident. Tell me a little bit yeah. of the backstory behind that bar. So we, we have done tastings. My sample life, getting groups in, explaining how chocolate is made. 
and sometimes we wanted to do something different and some breweries local breweries here had asked us if we want to do a collaboration like tasting chocolate and beer together which is actually really fun i prefer that even more to any kind of wine and chocolate tasting i think beer is amazing because you have so many varieties right so it's kind of like and so it works really well together you have different types of bitters and sweetness and even sourness from beer that kind of really works with chocolate so it was like at one of those nights that one of our local breweries here, Bor, came. And they would bring a lot of their ingredients to just show off some of the barley, the different types of roasted barley, the hops and everything. And people are smelling and also smelling cacao beans and then tasting everything together. And when they left that night, they kind of just left all their stuff in our what we call the classroom. And we have been working on a recipe for like a white chocolate that had like some kind of caramel note to it. We wanted to have that kind of caramel flavor in the bar. And we've done a bar in the past that worked out okay, but had a, was very unstable because we're using caramelized sugar in it. And when you temper a bar with caramelized sugar, it starts to attract a lot of moisture. So it would just crystallize on the inside. And, and I kind of almost gave up on trying to figure out that right type of caramelation flavor. So when I was looking at those leftovers they left with us, and specifically the kind of heavy roasted barley that they had left, I had something going on in one of my test machines. I just poured some in, hoping that would get some kind of bitter, burnt kind of flavor that would resemble like caramelized sugar. And then the day after when we came and tasted it, it looked very brown grayish and didn't look very appeasing but when we tasted it it was like whoa this is kind of interesting this doesn't have it does have caramel notes but it has a lot more kind of grainy multi flavor to it uh something you just call this is like burnt toast but delicious burnt toast like uh so it just kind of stuck with us for a while we talked about it and then when i started working on it i was just playing with different types of roasted malt but uh, I always came to that first one that I accidentally or accidentally just threw in there. The heavy was called Karafa 3, and, mm -hmm. you know, the ones that you kind of have for the stouts. And I wanted to use that. And I definitely knew that I wanted also some kind of the texture, the kind of crispiness, because I was eating some of it. Like, it was, feels like those popcorn kernels that are at the bottom of your popcorn can, that, you know, the ones that are a little crispy but have that kind of toasty flavor. So... I found a farm here in Iceland that does organic barley. Uh, we got that. We took it to a popcorn factory that made sense and had them kind of puff it up for us. And we also used that puffed barley and we grounded that into like a powder and added that into it. We added some malt flour as well and that toasted barley as well. So it was that kind of eureka moment that came. It was like, okay, this is getting more malty, more grainy. We had had a lot of groups come through the factory and we let them sample something we're working and everybody would stop with that one. It was like, what is that? <laughs> so the kind of final ingredient we added was the activated charcoal made from coconut ashes. And it gave that kind of hint of smoke and that kind of dramatic color as well. So, and of course, a healthy dose of salt. And we felt we had something and we just put it out there. You know, we didn't know what kind of reaction we'd get, but the black and burnt barley bar is technically a white chocolate bar that became black. So yeah, it's really interesting that it's a white chocolate and it's the darkest <laughs> bar I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that that mostly of course it contributes from the activated charcoal. Like you just hit it. without it, it's very kind of milk chocolate, kind of grayish color, but that kind of 
And I think that's why we kind of started experimenting adding the charcoal, but but we didn't expect that it comes with a hint of kind of like smoke. So that just kind of felt it all worked out. And it felt very Icelandic as well, kind of. Uh, we did a small adjustment to the recipe uh, last summer, where usually when you make white chocolate, you have the cocoa butter, you have sugar, and you have milk powder. And that's like your basic white chocolate recipe. Mm -hmm. So we thought there was something, there was a flavor there with the milk version that was kind of savory, maybe overly savory. And we started experimenting, taking out the milk powder and adding more of that uh, puffed barley flour that we had added. And it just became more kind of malty and grainy and texture. It was a little more grainy, but because we're kind of reducing the fat from it. So it's not as creamy and soft, but flavor wise, I thought it dominated better than the milk version. So now it's like almost fully vegan in that sense. So you're using Carafa 3, you're getting Icelandic barley that you're having puffed at a popcorn place, and then you're using the malt powder. Where are you sourcing all those from? You mentioned the farm for the barley. Are you still working with the brewery to get the Carafa 3, or do you go straight mm -hmm. through a provider? We went straight to the provider. So the both the, uh, the Carafa 3 and the malt flour come from Germany, and the other, of course, barley from Iceland. The thing about the Icelandic barley, which I've heard from other brewers that have been trying to make uh, beer from it, it doesn't have that, forgive me, uh, my, my uh, knowledge of beer is kind mm -hmm. of average, but I, if I'm understanding correctly, it doesn't have that kind of right type of sprout, so it doesn't, you can't get that nice maltiness, that kind of, it doesn't have high sugar level, if, okay, I'm, sure. if I'm saying this correctly. So that's the reason we can use that as the kind of main flavor component, and that's why we need to source it outside of Iceland. Sure. And I understand that uh, some breweries there in Iceland have also used your cacao then in some beers. Can you share with me some of those examples? Yeah, uh, I think the first one was an Easter beer that brewery Borg made. I think it was back in 2014. And they used the coconut from Madagascar in it. And uh, they also used it for a Christmas beer later on that year. I think they also put some gingerbread into the mix. Uh, <laughs> so it was kind of like a chocolate gingerbread bread beer. But the most maybe fun uh, part that they use, some of the brewers, is that so when you roast a cacao bean, you need to winnow it to remove the kind of outer shell husk to expose the nips because the nips is basically the main ingredient for chocolate. But that husk that I, it was something that we used, we'd throw away uh, because it didn't have any more purpose. But sometimes we'd try making like a cold brew out of it and it did taste kind of funky, kind of like a, I don't know, a kind of weird multi chocolate tasting tea. And so I think I talked to some brewers and said, Do you guys want to try using this? This could be fun. This has a lot of flavor in it. And I gave them the cold brew and they're like, Ooh, this is like body into it. And so they started taking some of that husk and adding to their beer as well. And I think that even worked better than the coconuts because since the coconuts have a, basically have 50% fat and they were having problems. Sometimes the fat will be seeding into the liquid and it wouldn't work as well. But with the cocoa husk, on the other hand, they would get a lot of different type of flavor. It's not like chocolate flavor, but cocoa-ish. So, and it's perfect that they're using it because it's just being repurposed. Otherwise, we just throw it out. Uh, and I've seen you've done one with Kex. Is that right? 
Yeah, I, I, I might have missed out how many we've done with, with we've done. Yeah, Kex Brewery might have used it at one point. At least four or five other breweries that have been using stuff from us. So we'll be right back. Hey everyone, Final Gravity issue four is now available in the Bean to Bar Stool shop. This fourth issue of our zine telling intimate, human-centered stories from the world of beer is full of great articles, including Kate Power of Lady Justice Brewing talking about why she might be done with beer festivals, Ukrainian beer writer Lana Svetinkova writing about the Zeugel brewing tradition in Germany, UK writer Matthew Curtis talking about the blend of old and new in the Cascale tradition in Manchester, and many more. We believe passionately in this project, and if you believe the story of beer is ultimately a story about people and relationships, we think you'll love Final Gravity as well. You can order the new issue from our shop on beandabarstool.com, or you can also subscribe, including subscribing for your brewery tap room or break room, or you can subscribe and sign up to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash beantobarstoolzines. Now, back to the episode. You mentioned pairing uh, earlier, and I agree with you. I love pairing beer and chocolate. Do you have any quick thoughts on your experiences from doing that? Recommendations for people on pairing beer and chocolate? Yeah, it's the what I, or at least my preference was kind of like always that. For instance, if you do something a dark beer like a porter or a stout, you feel like you you're gonna go for a dark chocolate, but it's kind of like the opposite always. So if you have if you're drinking something darker, full body, more bitter, you would go for something sweeter, like a sweeter milk chocolate or white chocolate. And those two things will always combine. And then even when you go to like a sour ale, then it's perfect to go to a dark chocolate because those two things will kind of work out. It was kind of like just a simple thumb of a rule of thumb is basically go for the kind of opposite of what you think it's going to be. And it's going to be much more delicious. But overall, I think milk chocolate for me works best with any type of beer it's if it's kind of sweet and milky chocolate it will more or less kind of work best across the board dark beers definitely for milk chocolate and lighter beers you could then start going to the dark dark world where it's no milk in it because you're going to get some sweetness from the beer and then you're going to get some more bitterness from the chocolate so it's kind of works the other way so for you tasting chocolate you're working with this every day you know, you're kind of seeing behind the scenes every single day what's going into this. Do you still get to sit down and just enjoy chocolate and taste that in an intentional way for yourself? Yes. And I think it, I, I kind of need to be outside work to do that because when you're in here, you know, we're roasting cocoa beans, we're working with it constantly. It's in the air. So you're smelling it. So you can taste something that you're working on, but you kind of need to get out of it go home you know make dinner and maybe sit down watch something on Netflix then open up a bar and just be in the moment for that at least just to sample it to fully appreciate it and sometimes I'm surprised about some of the kind of products that we've been making for the past eight years and I haven't even tasted it except for sometimes a small quality test when I come home something that I one of the maybe the first lineup of chocolate we did and I taste it again and I kind of like ah it's like a nice reminder of like okay this is still good this is still surprising this is still has that kind of 
warm feeling about it. So when you're out of work, it, you definitely can appreciate it more. Do you love chocolate today as much as you did when you started making it? <laughs> I would say yes, but I also would say like, I think I have a different appreciation for it. And, and, and especially like tasting other people's or other manufacturers product as well. That like, for instance, there's a lot of, like I mentioned, to make chocolate from those Madagascan beans and do it in a very similar way. But there's something about some of these producers that are doing something different. And you were like thinking to say, what did they do there? Because we're using the same source material, but mm. it's definitely tastes different. It tastes sweeter or it tastes more fruitier or something like that. So I think I have a lot of fun and I'm being surprised about other chocolate makers chocolate. Do you have a favorite of your own bars? One that I kind of always kind of appreciate most is the called Dark Milk of Tanzania. And it's the kind of chocolate that I enjoy the most. Uh, I mean, I love milk chocolate, I would say more than dark chocolate, but it has a different, uh, a different type of vibe about it. But the dark milk, Tanzania, was a chocolate that actually my sister gave me the inspiration for it because he wanted to do a dark milk chocolate, but that was very dark, so it's 65%. And so it's a very minimum amount of sugar in it, only like 25%. And just a little bit of milk powder, but still it has that kind of robust flavor from the Tanzania bean, but the kind of texture of milk chocolate. So I kind of get the best of both worlds with that bar. What story is your chocolate telling at Omnom? I, I think I'm still, like I mentioned earlier, on this path of trying to maybe educate people about how chocolate can vary whether it be from a single origin or into milk or into white, like the white chocolate category that we have, it's, that's really where I can, can uh, kind of let loose because I'm not working the restraint of the cocoa flavor, flavor, but more with the cocoa texture, the chocolate texture. So I think the black and burn, the, the licorice bar, a kind of like good example of just seeing what chocolate can be. And then also when you come to the, like the single origin ones, I feel like we're telling the story of a place where it comes from, why it tastes like this, the people behind it. So, I mean, if you look at the, all our bars, if you would put them side to side, you would see all this different color spectrum. And maybe that's maybe how we would see life and people that we're all different in shapes and color and where we come from, but we're all at the end the same. So maybe that's something. Black and Burnt Barley is one of my favorite bars from Omnom. The barley is soft like puffed rice, and the texture reminds me of Honey Smack's cereal. The flavor is like almost burnt caramel corn, with Omnom's classic caramel tones and silky texture, with just enough bite to balance the sweetness and some sea salt to fill out the flavor. As you heard me tell Kiartan, the lacrosse and sea salt bar is richly evocative for me, as the flavor of licorice root has been familiar to me since childhood. The bar has a deep and true presentation of the round flavor of licorice root rather than the denuded version often found in black licorice candy, with notes of absinthe and caramel and a touch of bitterness. And let's talk for a moment about how Omnom's gorgeous packaging dovetails with the flavors of each bar, allowing us to engage every sense in the tasting process. The artwork of the three bars in this year's collection together tell the story of Iceland, with a whale swimming through the aurora borealis above arctic wildlife standing in the snow, with waterfalls, black sand, a meandering stream, darkness, and light. 
The artwork for one of these bars, Dark Nibs and Raspberry, was especially beautiful to me, with its celestial cetacean manifested in life, solar radiation effulgent upon the projection screen of the northern sky, the haunted call of the deep echoing through a lunar microphone into the vastness of space, even the bashful stars turning their faces to the song. Yes, I'm letting my description get away from me, but if we can't be whimsical about chocolate, what can we be whimsical about? I could use more whimsy in my life as we settle into 2022. You can find all of the bars mentioned here, as well as many others, on omnonchocolate.com, which I'll link to in the show notes, though the winter bars will disappear quickly and the black and burnt barley is temporarily out of stock. It'll be back soon. Grab some of these bars and enjoy the delicious Icelandic brand of whimsy that is Omnom Chocolate. Thanks to Kiartan for coming on the show today. In the next episode of Bean to Barstool, we'll talk with Rebecca Hess of Cleveland Chocolate Company about her journey from chef to chocolate maker and hear from Sean Yasaki of Noble Beast Brewing, who has used Rebecca's cacao in some excellent beers. That will come out on Tuesday, February 1st. Thanks for listening to Bean to Barstool. Thank you.